You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Acts chapter 20, if you don't mind. Maybe a little bit. Acts chapter 20. As you're finding your place, I want to invite you to come back out this afternoon at 6.30. Uh, We're going to be having a prayer gathering uh, this afternoon. It'll be online uh, here on campus. We were going to uh, have a a Zoom option with that, but that's not going to be a a possibility this afternoon. So uh, if you want to tune in online, you can. Uh, if you want to be here on campus, you're more than welcome to be here on campus as well. Um, I, I just uh, felt strongly with all that's going on, uh, we needed to come together in prayer. Uh, this is not going to be a one-time. We're going to be doing this multiple times uh, coming up over the next several weeks. Uh, we'll let you know what those dates are. So if you can't participate today, there'll be another opportunity for you to participate. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 20 this morning. And I want to read, read these verses starting at verse 17 just to kind of get us settled down into this text. I appreciate Ryan covering for me last week. I took some time off. I appreciate him uh, covering the text. We'll kind of connect back to what he had to say last week. Let's look at verse 17 and following. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, not or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Father, uh, we pause this morning recognizing you as overall. That, Father, there is no aspect of this universe, no aspect of this earth, no kingdom or king, no president or congress that is greater than you. That, Father, in your providence and your sovereignty, you are moving things along just as you planned. Things are not out of control. If anything, they're in complete control within the palm of your hand. Father, the fall and the the brokenness, the evil, the sin that we see in our world over and over and over again is the direct result of the fall. And Father, you warned Adam and Eve in that garden that if they didn't obey you, the death and destruction would be the result. And Father, we've been living under the curse of sin all these many generations. And Father, it's alive and well today. But Father, you have not left us without a rescue. You've not left us without an option. You've not left us without the possibility of not only escaping, but able to thrive in a broken environment. And it's only through the gospel of your son, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that gives us life and peace. Father, I pray that as we walk through this text this morning, that first of all, you'll be exalted. Father, that um, 
the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Father, as we look at Paul, as we look at his leadership, as we look at the elders of these churches that were established in, in very short order through the power of the Holy Spirit working through Paul, Father, there's some things we need to see this morning as a church body. Father, I pray that you bring our attention to it. Bring about the change inside of us that needs to happen. And above all, for every person either in this building or watching online this morning, that if there's something missing, if there is a hole in the middle of their life that they've been trying to fill with everything under the sun, I pray, Father, that uh, today would be that day of salvation. You've given us another day to live, another day to talk about you, another day to talk about your grace and your goodness and your gospel. But while it comes down to the person placing faith and repentance, turning from their old life towards you. And Father, I pray that today would be the day that many would come out of darkness in the light. Your goodness and your kindness towards us has been far more than we've ever deserved. The fact is, Father, that um, you've been so good to us, we recognize our undeserving nature. We, we understand, Father, that the goodness that we've experienced even today was not anything that, that we've deserved or merited on our own by our works, by our religious observations that, that, Father, if we got what we deserved, we'd be separated from you this morning for all eternity. But Father, I'm so glad that you pursued us with your goodness and your grace. And for those who put their faith in you, we don't have to worry about tomorrow or next week or next year. We don't have to worry about whether we're given another day or not, that once we leave this world, we've just begun to live. So, Father, we thank you for the promises that you've made and that you will keep every single one of them. We love you. We thank you for your goodness, for your presence here this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would have your will and your way here above all things. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the challenges that we face as a church and uh, as, as a leader and a servant of the body of Christ is something that I run into on a regular basis, and that's the public perception of church, Christianity, uh, of pastors. I was telling a friend of mine the other day, uh, a really good friend of mine, was, we were talking, and, and he said that, that, he asked me the question, he said, when you're, in a, when you're in an environment where there's mixed people there, like you're a picnic or or something where people don't know you, do, you, do you often tell people what your line of work is? I said, not till they pry it out of me. Because the very moment I say that I'm a pastor, everybody changes. Everything changes. Uh, it's weird. It gets really weird. So I don't, I don't tell them outright that, uh, that I'm a pastor until somebody asks me. And then, of course, I'm not embarrassed of it by any means. But it seems like the temperature in the room changes quite a bit. Sometimes people clam up. Sometimes they don't even want to be around you just because of, of their perception of what you believe and where you stand. The perception of the community towards the church has been hampered drastically by not only church folk who talk the talk but don't walk the walk, but even more so leaders within Christianity, within the church, whether they be pastors, deacons, elders, Sunday school leaders who have, who have made major moral failures, and, and that major moral failure makes its way out into the public square, and it per perpetuates this idea that not only can the church not be trusted, but the church is filled with hypocrites. Now, let me just say this. Yes, the church is filled with hypocrites. I'm one of them. The idea is, is that I know what God's Word says I ought to be doing. I don't always match what God's Word says, so therefore I fall short each and every day of my life to live up to the standards of what Christ has set for me, what the Holy Spirit says is to be about my life. But the fact is, my life is aimed towards pleasing Him. My desire every day when I get out of bed every morning is that I'm pleasing and faithful unto the calling by which God has called me and the walk that He's given me to walk. But you know as well as I do, when a Christian leader falls publicly, the unchurched, those who have no connection to the church, all of a sudden, all in unison, begin to say, see, there it is again. All Christians, and this is always the interesting thing that I see is, is that when a, when a leader falls publicly, that those who join into the chorus of talking about it begin to say, see, all Christians are alike. They lump us all into that same basket. 
The unchurched believe that all Christians are corrupt. If one is corrupt, then they all must be corrupt. And they make a lot of jokes about it. They make a lot of stories about it. They post a lot of blogs about it. And it's interesting to me that when you look at the news, when you hear the things being talked about, about a leader falling, is we're all kind of lumped into the same basket. It's interesting to me that, that, that the news will tell us that not all Muslims are terrorists. I don't believe that all Muslims are terrorists. So if there's one Muslim who's a terrorist, that certainly doesn't corrupt them all. But if you let one Christian leader fall, then we're all corrupt. I find that very interesting. You may have been reading in the news lately about Jerry Falwell Jr. And I want to hit that head on this morning. And it's just interesting that the text I'm dealing with today deals with this directly. I am a graduate of Liberty University twice over with my undergrad and my master's divinity. I got a tremendous education through Liberty University, and I love that school. But I do not, I do not like, and I do not affirm what the president and chancellor of that university has done and what has come out in public about his lifestyle and what he's been doing behind closed doors. Don't know if you've read it. You probably have. But what it has done is it has brought yet again reproach upon the body of Christ. I don't know all the facts. Probably won't ever know them. But this is what I know thus far, is that Jerry Falwell Jr. has been participating in lifestyles and lifestyle choices that couldn't be further from what a leader, especially a leader of the largest Christian university in the world, is called to do in integrity and character. So when I see that, it, it, first of all, I want, you, I want you to know, it makes me angry. It makes me really angry because in my mind, I can't figure out, well, I can, but the questions that come up in my head is, how can a person live one way publicly in front of a Christian university and something totally different behind closed doors? I think we know the answers to that. We're going to see some of them today. In Paul's conversation with these elders from Ephesus, you see, every single one of us who name the name of Christ must walk with character and integrity. And if you are the leader, if you've, if you've been set aside to serve the church in some special role, whether that be Sunday school teacher, whether that be deacon, whether that be uh, on staff, whether that be some kind of place in this place where you're leading kids, students, adults, senior adults, you are held to a higher standard. You absolutely are. And it pains me, it, it troubles me when I see Christian leaders who have tremendous influence over large groups of people live a double life. One public, one private, and the two aren't connected at all. Paul has been extremely effective, effective like anyone else we've ever seen to this day, of able to plant churches in very harsh, difficult areas, not only to plant that church and establish that church, but, but to, in a very short period of time, be able to have a church that is reproducing itself and reproducing leaders. What is amazing about Paul's life is he'll go into an area like Ephesus. He's there for right around three years. He's able to walk out of that area and that church continue the ministry, the doctrine, the equipping, the discipling, even raising up elders and leaders to lead that congregation. Even though Paul is miles and miles away, when he checks back in on that church, he finds out that not only are they growing, but they are effectively reaching their community. They are effectively discipling the people they're reaching. And not only that, leaders are being raised up even while Paul is thousands of miles away. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He, he is compelled by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. He, there's a couple of reasons for that. And we, we see it in this text that he wants to be back there. If you look at the early part of chapter 20, he wants to go back and he wants to, to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. That's one reason he wants to go back. Another reason he wants to go back is he's carrying a large sum of money that he has collected from all of these churches that he's been able to establish to take back to the Jerusalem church that was struggling with poverty and struggling with hunger because of a famine. The third reason he's got to go to Jerusalem is because the Holy Spirit said, Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. And next week we're going to see some of his friends come around Paul and try to talk him out of that. Because not only does Paul understand this, but the people around Paul understand that if he goes back to Jerusalem, we're probably never going to see him again. 
because of the hatred that they had for Paul. They're in Jerusalem among the Jewish leadership. They're going to do everything they can to silence him. Paul is making his way back. This is the ending of his third missionary journey. He makes his way back over to Macedonia. He visits some of the churches. He comes back over to Troas. Now, Troas is an amazing story. We won't get into it here today, but it's a story of a guy named Eutychus, and Eutychus is sitting in a third-floor window. Paul is preaching, and the sermon has gone on so long that Eutychus falls asleep, falls out of the third-story window, hits the ground, and dies. Paul comes out and raises him back to life. So in that, we can all say this morning, we're all thankful that you're not in a third-floor window. Yeah, you got it. Paul raised him back to life and eventually makes his way all the way down to a little area called Miletus. Now, he, he had the option to go to Ephesus. He had the option to sail into Ephesus and spend some time there, but he didn't because he was concerned that, that he would be overwhelmed in the needs of Ephesus, and he just didn't have the time. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem, so he sails on past Ephesus, lands on Miletus, and then calls for the elders from the Ephesus church, the church at Ephesus, to come and join him there. It's about a 30-mile journey. I would imagine that while the ship that he's riding on is being unloaded and loaded back, he sends this word, a 30-mile journey, and the, the elders come to where he is. This will be the last time that he will meet with them. Paul knows deep down, Paul knows that when he goes back to Jerusalem, everything's going to change. Now, he doesn't know if his life is going to end. He knows there's going to be trouble. He knows that when he goes back, there's going to be a price to pay. So he tells these elders that they will not see his face again. Paul loves all of his churches that he's planted. But there's something about this church at Ephesus. He wanted to get there because he knew the impact it could have. But he spends almost three years there, and his heart is connected to this church and to the leaders there, to the people there, to the, to the city. And there's going to be a lot of tears shed because he knows that this is going to be the last time that he, he's able to meet with them. The church that experiences revival, and, and Ryan brought this forward last week, that, that in Ephesus a great revival was happening, even to the point that, that all these people who were selling idols to Artemis we're losing business because so many people were coming to faith in Christ that they were turning away from idolatry. And, and Demetrius and, and, and all those leaders get together and they talk about the loss of income that they were experiencing there because so many people were turning to faith in Christ. That's when you know revival is occurring in your city. When the prostitutes are no longer prostituting, They've come to faith in Christ, and those who are pimping out those prostitutes are trying to figure out why is it we've lost so many of our women that we've been able to prostitute out. Oh, it's because of that church downtown who's telling them about Jesus and their life is changing. It's, it's the drug pushers who no longer have many people to sell drugs to because so many people are coming to faith in Christ that they're no longer using and abusing drugs. Is that possible? Is it possible for God to move in such a way in a city that those things happen? Or have you lost courage and faith in the gospel to have that kind of transforming power in the life of not only the individual, but also a city? You see, that's what revival is. This revival that is ongoing in Ephesus also is going to bring with it a challenge. Because any move of God in any city, any church, any individual is also going to be met with opposition and trouble and pain. And these shepherds from Ephesus are going to come and meet with Paul, and Paul is going to deal with their leadership within that church. He's going to deal specifically with these elders and what is expected of these elders in that church because Paul knows that anywhere God is working, the first people that are going to be under attack are the ones who are leading the ministry. You know why that is? For exactly what I said at the very beginning, if a leader falls, the world looks at it and goes, see, they're all the same. Why is it a leader is held to a higher standard? It's because of your influence over the group of people that you lead. Whether it be a first grade class in our children's ministry, whether it be a group of teenagers, whether it be a senior group of people where you're investing them in a small group, Regardless of what your role is, you are held to a higher standard because when you fail and that failure becomes public, it does great damage to the body of Christ and to the gospel itself. Look at verse 17. 
Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called some of the elders of the church to come to him. Who are these elders? What, what is an elder? An elder is the shepherd of a congregation. And notice the plural elders of the congregation in the church at Ephesus, that in that church, there are multiple shepherds serving that congregation who are providing oversight, leadership, service to that body there in Ephesus. Now, Paul wants to talk with these elders because he knows this is the last time he's going to be able to see them. And what we're going to find in the verses following we're going to find eight characteristics of what godly leadership looks like, both in how Paul lived his life and what he's telling these leaders that they've got to be focused on. So I want you to see these eight characteristics. And then I want to talk to you about, are you having those characteristics, not just within the ministry, but within your home? Because whether you're leading ministry here at the church or you're involved in some leadership role here, you are leading your family and you're leading your home. Let's see if we have these kind of characteristics in our home and in our life. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you. The first thing that we need to see, the first characteristic of a God leader is he identifies with the people they lead. You identify with the people you lead. It doesn't matter if they're children, students, or senior adults. You identify with those people. In other words, as a leader, you're not often some office removed from the people that you serve. I teach uh, some leadership classes at uh, Carolina College of Biblical Studies. I've got one leadership class that I'm teaching right now that I'm, I've got 12 students in this class. And, and one of the things I keep emphasizing is the servant aspect of what it means to be a leader, that Inside the church, inside the body of Christ, we are called to be servant leaders. And we cannot separate our leadership from our service to the body. When we do, we become, well, separated from the people we serve. And that is never healthy. Paul lived among the people he served. He lived among them. It says here, he says, How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears. When you serve among your people, when you, when you live among your people and you walk among your people, here's what they see in you. They see your humility. They see your tears. They see your pain. They see what hurts you. They see what's a priority for you. They see what your life is about. You can't do that off in some office somewhere separated from your people. It's the same in your home. You can't lead your children, your grandchildren, your family, your wife, your husband. You can't lead if your life is consumed with things that have nothing to do with your family. We, we live in an entertainment culture, and we pursue entertainment like it's, like it's this, this end all of our life, that we, we need more entertainment, we need, we need more shows to watch, we need more movies, and especially during this COVID-19, you've probably ran through everything, you're probably watching DVDs and even VHS tapes. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a square box with tape. <laughs> You've been going through your attic looking for more stuff to watch just to get you through this COVID pandemic. But if we are totally and consistently consumed with these devices that we carry around in our pockets and the devices that you've got at home, and we're not leading our family and, and living with our family. Did you know you can be in the household with your husband and with your wife and with your kids, but you're not really there? Paul says a leader, whether they be in the church or in the home, you've got to live and identify with the people you're with. It seems kind of basic, doesn't it? That I need to be with the people I lead? Absolutely. No shepherd, no parent can serve their flock from a distance. From a distance. Sheep, sheep are difficult. It requires direct life-on-life -life ministry, both in the church and in the home. You can't be passive. You've got to be active. Parents, listen to me. You've got to be active, engaged in the lives of your kids. You've got to be there. You've got to be there, which means the device has got to be somewhere over there, and you've got to be there with your kids mentally. They know if you're there or not. He says here, serving the Lord with all humility, with all tears, and with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So the first example of a leader, or the first character of a leader is they've got to identify with the people they lead. Secondly, leaders are going to be teachers of the word. Notice what he says here, verse 20, how I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Leaders are to be people of the book. You can't separate your leadership in your home or in the church from this book. You've got to be a teacher. Now, you may be saying, well, look, I don't, I don't know how to teach God's Word. Look, what you're doing in your home, what we're doing in this ministry together, whether you may be called or even have the gifting of teaching, you're teaching something every day to your kids. We're teaching something to our congregation every single time we stand. Every song we play, everything that's said in those Sunday school classes and the children's ministry, we are teaching either by example, whether it be a good one or a bad one. You can't separate yourself from it. And God and leaders know that they must be connected to the book. Why? Because there is no other truth that's going to guide your life or conform your life to something greater than yourself. Paul, Paul's ministry was teaching the Word. He, he knew that to be effective in that, he, he couldn't withhold anything. As your pastor... And as I serve this flock, there are times I have to say things that are hard, whether it be individually or corporately. I don't do that because I dislike you. I don't do that because you know, I want to be seen as hard. And I want you to know the reason I do that is because I love you, because the Word says it. And I don't have any other options here. I don't have the option to come in here and give you 10 steps to, to a better life. I have the only option of exposing what God's Word says so that it changes me and changes you. I don't, I don't get the option to choose to always give you stuff that, that sounds good and great and glorious and builds you up. Sometimes it's hard. And so it is in the home. That in the home, sometimes we have to say the hard things. Sometimes we have to do the hard things. Paul says that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he says he was not only teaching, but he was also telling the folks about what it means to follow Jesus, both in faith and repentance. So leaders identify with people. Leaders are teachers of the word, but also leaders are a witness. Notice this, verse 21. He says, testifying. Not only was Paul teaching, but he's testifying. Paul is telling people about when he was on the Damascus Road and he met Jesus and it changed everything. That the church leadership that does not testify is no longer leading the congregation in the Great Commission. I cannot stand in front of you and say to you, you must evangelize your neighbors if I'm not doing the same thing. I cannot stand in any small group or any other setting where I'm trying to teach or testify or witness to Christ and say something to you that I'm not willing to do myself. Paul says he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of a repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He testified. Paul didn't have to be on a platform. It doesn't matter if he was walking on a street, going from one city to the next. Paul brought Jesus up. You can't be the leader that God has called you to be, whether it be in your home or in this body called Hyde Park, and not be an effective witness. We can't say to one another, the Great Commission is important, but yet not engage in the witness that he's given us. We can't both say that we believe in heaven and hell and that people are going to hell every single day. We can't say on the one hand that we believe in a literal burning fiery hell, yet never talk about what changed us and brought us out. Well, the wrath of God brought us out from under the wrath of God and gave us freedom. We, we can't hold to a theology that says there's a heaven and hell, yet never bring Jesus up. Godly leaders both teach and witness. Because godly leaders understand that that's what God has called us to do. Both in the way we live and what we say. So not only do they identify with their people, they teach and they witness. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. The next quality I want you to see is that godly leaders are obedient to the Holy Spirit. Would the Holy Spirit lead you to do something that brings pain and difficulty into your life? Yes, He would. 
Because always remember, God's sole purpose in your life is not your comfort. It, it never was. Now, God in his great infinite grace and his great infinite love and mercy for us, there are times where we are comforted physically, emotionally, spiritually. But equally true, God could say to you, I've, I'm, I'm wanting you to do this. I'm wanting you to go back to that person that you wronged and seek forgiveness. I, I want you to reconcile with this other person. And you know what the cost is involved with that because you know this person maybe deeply hurt you or deeply offended you or maybe you hurt them and you know there's something between you and this other person, but God, the Holy Spirit will not let you go. He will not let you walk past this. He keeps saying you've got to reconcile that still small voice. And you know there's going to be a price involved with that. There's going to be some pain involved. Stuff that you'd rather not think about, you're forced to think about. Leaders within the church, regardless of the role, must be led by the Holy Spirit more than their agenda, more than what they want. In other words, whatever I want for this fellowship, whatever I want for this body of Christ moving forward into the future, I must be willing to surrender that to what the Holy Spirit wants because at the end of the day, what He wants is best. Sometimes we get in our minds that what we want and what we desire is what is best, not always. Leaders are obedient to the Holy Spirit even when we know pain and suffering is around the corner. Even when we know that where the Holy Spirit's leading us and what He's calling us to do may actually bring more discomfort than comfort. Any leader worth following is going to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit even if it means more pain. Notice what else Paul has to say here. Verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. Not only has he, is he going to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, but leaders, God of the leaders, surrender all rights to their own life. That happened the very moment you put your faith in Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the very moment you put your faith in Jesus and you turned away from your old life, you gave up rights to your own life. Paul would tell the church at Galatia that he would have to die daily. That every day he has to crucify himself. Why is that? It's because there's this tension between my kingdom and God's kingdom. There's this tension between me wanting to build a name for myself rather than walking in humility. There is this tension between my flesh wanting to elevate myself versus Christ who says, no, you must humble yourself. Every single day, I have to surrender rights to my own life. Do I like doing that? Well, no. No, I like me. I think me ought to be the most comfortable person around, and I think me ought to be the most popular person around, and I think that me ought to be the most effective person around, and I can go on and on and on about what I think I ought to be and what I think I ought to do. And every day, without fail, I'm reminded that the heart beating in my chest and the air that I breathe in is because God has gifted me with another day, and it wasn't my own strength. And I start there, and I realize how big He is and how small I am, and God effectively puts me in my place at the beginning of each new day. And it's there I have to say, Lord, this day's not about you. These minutes are not about, this day is not about me. This day's about you. These minutes are not about me. It's about you. It's not about my schedule. It's about you. Paul says that he didn't even count his own life of any value. Now, this, this is not Paul demeaning himself. This is not Paul devaluing his God-given value. This is Paul putting his life in perspective and saying that even if I have to die for the cause of what Christ has given me and the mission he's given me, then so be it. He says, if only I may finish my course. The leaders that have had the greatest impact in my life are leaders who do exactly what we see in verse 24. The leaders who've had the most impact in my life are the ones who, who say each and every day, this life is not about me, this life is a stewardship, and I'm to give this back as an act of worship, an act of worship back to God. Paul says, my life, my wants, my desires, I'm not going to allow that to drive my life. He says, I'm going to surrender all that. 
God compels us not to live for ourselves in selfish ambitions. But in complete surrender to Christ, give it all up. And we have to keep giving it all up every single day. It would be really easy for me to make Hyde Park about me. I strive really hard to not do that. But I want you to understand, I've got a flesh that I deal with, and that flesh wants to be seen, it wants to be heard, it wants to be put on a, on a pedestal, it wants to be applauded, and I will not allow that to happen. Hyde Park was here long before I got here. It'll be here long after I'm dead and gone. If God tarries his coming, the fact is that what God's doing here is bigger than me. It always has been. But this ministry can't be contingent upon me. It can't be contingent upon any deacon. It can't be contingent upon any Sunday school teacher because we together collectively are surrendering our rights to this body called Hyde Park. And we must do that because this fellowship does not belong to me. It belongs to Christ. He's the one that laid his life down for it, not me. Notice what else. Paul goes on to say, I do not count my life as anything to me that I, I must complete my course. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among you I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I know that had to be a hurtful thing for Paul to say and for those elders to hear. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, but pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So leaders identify with their people. Leaders teach the word. Leaders witness. Leaders are obedient to the Holy Spirit. Leaders surrender all rights to their own life. But leaders must pay careful attention to their spiritual walk. Paul says here to these elders, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves. Notice that he puts that before paying attention to the flock. Because Paul knows that if these men, these elders become corrupt, if they become less than disciplined, if they, if they begin to dabble around in sin and flesh, that it's going to destroy the flock. He says to those elders, pay attention to yourselves. You can't lead a single person to any greater depth of spiritual fervitude or obedience or anything else than you are yourself. You cannot lead your kids to any deeper spiritual walk than you are yourself. So you need to pay attention to yourself, your own walk with Christ. Pay careful attention. I believe, I, can, I promise you, I tell my students at CCBS this and the leadership classes that I teach there, I promise you that if we could bring together in one room all of these, these spiritual or these ministry leaders that had large, huge ministries, and we could sit them down and have a little panel discussion as to what was going on in their life right before the whole thing blew up. And if they were honest with us, I guarantee you this is what we would hear. If we were to ask the question, how was your prayer life? They would say, well, I was telling my people to pray, but I wasn't praying. Well, what about your, your character? You know, what about your honesty? Well, I was telling my people to be honest. But I was lying on every, every opportunity I could to build myself up and do whatever I needed to do. What about, what about lust? How, how, was, how was your lust? Did you have any you have any lustful issues in your life, in your marriage? Well, yeah, I was. The point is this, that every one of these leaders that we've seen that have made major moral failures, they didn't wake up one day and say, oh, today I'm going to step out on my wife or today I'm going to misappropriate funds or today I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to lie to my congregation. That didn't happen. I'll tell you what happened. It was over long periods of time, a slow fade from the disciplines of fasting and prayer and worship. I'm not talking about prayer within the congregation. I'm talking about personal discipline, walking with Christ day in and day out, the same thing that I'm asking you to do I'm doing. Every one of these leaders would tell you that they became isolated. They had no one that was holding them accountable. I think with anything I've seen with Falwell Jr. is, is that he became isolated. Everything that I've read, it seems as though he was doing his own thing over here with no accountability to anyone. Paul says to these elders, make sure you pay attention to your spiritual walk. How's your disciplines? How's your prayer life? How's your study in God's Word? How, how, how is your discipline life? 
because you have no right to look at your family, your small group, this body called Kai Park or anyone else and say to them, you need to be praying if you're not praying. You need to be in God's Word if you're not in God's Word. There's no credibility in that. So as a godly leader, you've got to take care of that spiritual walk. You've got to lead yourselves. Listen, you can't lead anyone else until you lead yourself. You can't lead anyone else to a deeper discipline unless you're a, a disciplined individual. You can't do that. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, and here it is, unto all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. Not only should leaders pay, a kid, pay a careful attention to their spiritual wall, but they also got to care for the flock, whatever flock you have under your care. You've got to care for that flock. Leading, feeding, protecting, training, providing are all aspects of shepherding. And boy, sheep can be stubborn. I don't mean that derogatory towards you specifically, but if the shoe fits, we've all got a vein of stubbornness, don't we? But notice this, the flock does not belong to the overseer. Notice this, Paul is very clear here. He says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. No pastor, no elder, no deacon owns the congregation, period. Because you didn't shed your blood for it, neither could you. Only Jesus Christ is the one who can lay claim to the body of his, uh, the body of Christ himself, the church body itself. He's the only one that can lay claim to it because he's the only one that died for it and the only one that could. So bishops, overseers, elders, they don't own the flock, but they have been called to care for the church, to lead it, to feed it, to protect it. And whether that flock be this congregation or whether that flock be at home, you must feed and prepare and train and equip. You must be the one standing on the gate. Listen to me, parents. You must be the one standing at the gate, only letting what comes into your home, making sure that what comes into your home is safe for your flock to be participating in. You have a right and a responsibility to guard what comes into your house and impacts your kids and your grandkids. That's your role as a leader in your home. And godly leaders must take care of the flocks they've been given responsibility for. Notice this, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the final thing I want you to see Leaders identify with their people. Leaders are teachers of the word. Leaders witness. Leaders are obedient to the Holy Spirit. Leaders surrender all rights to their own life. Leaders pay careful attention to their spiritual walk. Leaders must care for the flock. And finally, leaders must be alert to the present danger. Parents, did you realize, do you realize, that the Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? If you've ever watched any National Geographic shows, you know that the lions often look for the weakest and the youngest, those who maybe already have an injury, those, those among the, the wildebeest who are, who are isolated off to themselves, not, not really connected to anyone, and there's, there's no really anyone looking out for them. And, and that lion is creeping around, and he's looking for the weak, he's looking for the young, and he's looking for the wounded. And you may have all three in your house. And you've got to realize that that you, parent, are the first line of defense. You are the one who's keeping an eye out. You're the one with these, the kids and the teens that are in your home. They think that, that nothing, that there's no big deal. I can watch whatever I want. It's no big deal. It's not bringing any harm. But you as an adult, you know better because you have wisdom and experience and life. And you know that this stuff is going to bring harm into their life, not just because you have life experience, but because God's Word says that it's harmful. And you also know that Satan is roaring and creeping about, looking to separate, isolate, and then pounce. Same with the church. In any given week, it's amazing the attacks that we come under as a body. Can't share all of them with you, but it seems like they come on Monday mornings. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, 
we've been attacked multiple times down through the years. And I thank God for a, for a group of deacons that I get to serve with and staff that I get to serve with that are doing their very best to keep their eyes open. This body's attacked on a regular basis because God's working here. And as your, as your shepherd, I've, I've got to keep my eyes open to that, and I've got to be diligent to run. Listen, I've got to be diligent to run towards the problem, not away from it. I've got to be diligent not to sweep it under the rug because it would make my life easier, but to deal with the hard stuff. And so it is in your home. You've got to deal with the hard stuff. You've got to have the hard conversation because there are wolves creeping about. These wolves, you know, uh, they're ruthless. They're ruthless. Jesus said that oftentimes wolves will come into the fold looking like they're sheep. Paul says here that these wolves are going to come from the outside, but notice this, he says they're going to come from the inside. He says they're going to come up from among your own selves that are going to be teaching twisted things. And that's what wolves almost always do. They're false teachers. This is going to sound pretty graphic, but I'm going to share the advice with you that my pastor who mentored me shared with me. And at the time he told me this, I thought, man, that, that sounds a little rough, but I've lived long enough now to know he's exactly right. He said that wolves, he said with wolves, you know, they look kind of like a dog. They look kind of like a, like you might could turn them into a pet. And he said there's going to be people who come into the congregation who, they're going to seem like your best friend. And he said, they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And he said, eventually, they will reveal themselves for who they really are, either by their teaching or by their actions. Usually, it comes as a stab in the back. But he said, there's only one thing you can do with a wolf. He said, you can't pet them. You can't domesticate them. And here it is. You have to stick a knife right through their heart. Now, he's not talking about literally. He's talking about you've got to get them out of your fellowship. You've got to bring church discipline to bear, and you've got to get them out of your fellowship because if, they, if you don't, they will destroy the flock in a very short period of time. Think about a wolf being thrown in a pen full of sheep. It's going to get ugly real quick. You see, these wolves have a desire to build their own following by deception and false teaching. They, they have a desire not to honor Christ, but to honor themselves. As a matter of fact, every other quality I just mentioned to you, wolves do not have. They don't care about the people. They care about their agenda. They don't witness because they're not concerned about witnessing. They're not in God's Word, and they're not looking after their walk because they're following their own desires, not what the Holy Spirit says to them. And they're certainly not submitted to the Holy Spirit. These eight characteristics, not only do they apply to this church and our leaders, but they apply to your home. Did you know that only 30% of our population has an interest in attending church? I just heard this stat recently, only 30%. What that means is, is that if you've got a city of 100 people, then only 30 have any interest whatsoever in attending your church. Now, if you take that 30%, you divide that among all the different denominations and all the different cults, it may be as low as 9 to 10% of who you come in contact with actually has a desire to come with you to church. I'll tell you what the number one reason is for that 70% or one of the number one reasons. I think, I think this would rank in the top three at least. That 70% that aren't interested, it's because they've come to the conclusion that the church is irrelevant, that it's full of hypocrites, and right now they'll turn to Jerry Falwell Jr. and say, see, there's my evidence. Your pastor's no different. Your church is no different. Your deacons are no different. Your Sunday school teachers are no different. And if, if, if that's all you've got to offer, if corruption is all you've got to offer, then that's fine. I'm going to be on the golf course on Sunday morning, or I'm going to be in the bed on Sunday morning, but I don't want nothing to do with your fellowship. You see, these characteristics, these qualifications, these, the, these, these things that, that God has called us to be, both in our home and in the church, have a direct connection to our effectiveness with the gospel in a community that is desperately lost. Could it be that we've lost some of our integrity? Lost person, could it be that one of the reasons you're not putting your faith in Jesus is because of those stuff, that stuff in the back of your mind that you're hung up on that maybe happened 20 years ago in some church that you grew up in and you got hurt and your family got hurt. And ever since that day, you have washed your hands of the gospel. Is your eternity worth that? 
Is your eternity separated from God worth that kind of response? I am thankful that not every leader is corrupt. I'm thankful there are godly people in this fellowship, in the homes that make up this fellowship, who are leading their family well. I want you to understand that our corruption or our our stepping away from the faith or our dabbling with the flesh or involving ourselves in things that we know we shouldn't be dabbling in, it doesn't just hurt you and your relationship to Christ. It hurts the body. It hurts our mission. It hurts our effectiveness. So what's the answer? Well, Paul Paul's said it many times already, the repentance, turning away, surrendering all over again. Give the Holy Spirit control of your life, dying to self. That really is the process. That really is the, the pathway back. Father in heaven, in this room this morning and, and watching online this morning, we have both groups recognized or, or are available or present. And they, those are leaders in the church, the leaders in the home. These qualifications apply to both. And Father, it's not about clawing ourselves to be better people. It's about surrendering to the Holy Spirit, maybe for salvation, maybe as a disciple of Christ that we see that we're spending our life about ourselves and not about others. Father, what is desperately needed in this fellowship is more leadership, more people who will step forward and be willing to lead, people who will step forward and be willing to invest their lives in others. We need that. Moving forward, we need that. But Father, we can only lead other people as far as we are, as deep as we are ourselves. So Father, I pray that we would keep an eye on our, on our walk, where we stand with you. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 